Hello, and welcome to another episode of Violin Class, the podcast for the non-professional violinist or violin enthusiast. My name is Julia. I'm your host. And in this episode, I'm going to be discussing why classical violinists don't improvise. But before I get into it, I actually would like to hear from you. I am collecting questions from listeners for a future episode that I will call Ask a Violin Teacher, where I'll answer all of your questions about learning the violin or any roadblocks that you're facing. So if you have any burning burning questions, something that you would like uh, my input on, please shoot me an email at violinclasspod at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Also, if you are a regular listener and you've enjoyed some of these past episodes, if you learned something, I would really appreciate it if you could take a couple of seconds to rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts because it will help other listeners like you to find the podcast a little bit more easily. Um, It's something to do with the algorithm. For those of you that have already left a review, thank you so much. It really does make a difference. And even more importantly, it actually lets me know that there are live human beings listening to this on the other side of this microphone. So uh, once again, thanks a lot for those of you who have left a review and let's get into it. We've all heard crazy improvised guitar solos in a rock band or an improvised sax solo in a jazz band, but why don't we hear crazy violin solos in an orchestra? Why in general do classical musicians not improvise at all? You may be surprised to learn that this wasn't always the case, and classical music, especially violin, has a rich history of improvisation. In fact, we've been improvising on stage longer than we haven't. In this episode, I will be discussing the history of improvising in classical music, why we stopped, and where improvising violinists are now. Before I get into the history of improvisation, I want to first discuss what improvisation actually is in music. When we think of the word improvising, that means that you're doing something without planning or preparation or just winging it. However, improvising in music usually takes a lot of planning and preparation so that you can make something up on the spot that works with the rest of the song. I would put improvised music into two categories. Free improv and structured improv. Free improv is just what it sounds, making music freely and organically without any structure that you necessarily need to follow to make it work. The opposite category is structured improv, which follows some sort of harmonic or stylistic language, be it jazz, flamenco, bluegrass, or anything else. I'll take jazz as an example. Although free improvisation is definitely a thing in jazz, most of the time musicians are improvising over a musical blueprint. This blueprint is traditionally learned by ear, but when written down, it's called a lead sheet, which is just the musical notation that is used in jazz. The lead sheet contains the melody, the chords, and the structure of the tune, which musicians learn and internalize, and then they play things that sound cool over it and embellish the melody to reflect their own style. The notes they are playing are made up on the spot, but they sound good because of all of their practice and planning ahead of time. And yes, this is something that we used to do in the classical world as well. Let's look back at early classical music, the Baroque era, which was from the 1600s to about the mid-1700s, the time of Bach, Vivaldi, Telemann, and other great composers. 
Just like the jazz lead sheet, Baroque music had a different notation called figured bass. This is essentially a written bass line with a bunch of numbers written over it, and it's something that all classical musicians learn to read at some point in their undergrad and then immediately forget upon graduation. Uh, the numbers and notes essentially represent the same thing as the chords in a lead sheet, and they give instructions to the musicians as to which harmonies or accompaniment will sound good with the melody. A performer that specializes in the Baroque era could read these instructions and improvise a harmony that fits within the structure and the style. Similarly, the soloist would learn the melody and add embellishments and ornaments to make it their own. Let me play you an example of what a simple melody could sound like, first played just as written and then with some embellishments. This skill was a very important part of being a musician at the time and required a lot of knowledge of the idiomatic expressions of the style. We can compare this to learning a language. Once you know the grammar and vocabulary, you can experiment with adding slang or idioms to your sentences to make things a little bit more interesting and make you sound like you're a bit more of a native speaker. Improvising continued to be an important part of the classical and even early Romantic era, and many of the great composers and violinists of the time had this skill. When we move on to a later time in history, the biggest improvisational feat that comes to mind is the cadenza. The cadenza, for those who don't know, is essentially a solo break in a concerto. If you want to hear more about what a concerto is or a cadenza, you can listen to my last episode, the violin repertoire, which is, I believe, episode number five. The cadenza usually occurs after the biggest, most complex section of the piece, and then the orchestra goes silent with while the soloist performs a big, complex solo. Usually this happens at the end, but not always. For instance, the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto has the cadenza in the middle, and uh, then the, the performer has to continue playing after they've finished um, the orchestra will usually join back in at the end of the cadenza with flourishes until the finish. Historically, cadenzas were improvised and they were an opportunity for the soloist to make music of their own, as well as flex their technique. Although they would follow a structure and idiomatic language of the time, playing alone would probably would have been the most free situation in which they could improvise. All that sounds super inciting, but unfortunately, it's not something you'll hear very often nowadays. In modern times, we often learn and perform written cadenzas, many that were ironically usually written by improvising violinists from a century or so ago. When we go to play a Mozart concerto for a teacher, they will likely first ask which cadenza you're playing, and they would expect to hear probably one of three of uh, the names of the most famous ones. We have fingerings and bowings for them, and we practice them to the point of being able to give the illusion of improvising. It sounds a little silly when you think about it, but that's how it works nowadays. 
Sometimes a really creative violinist or student will write their own cadenza, which we would find very daring. This is becoming more and more mainstream, though, which I think is really awesome to see, but it is not typical. So why is this? Why are violinists so obsessed with sounding like we're improvising without actually working to develop that skill? As a violinist who is interested in improvisation, these are questions that I've been asking myself for years, and I finally sat down and did the research for this episode. The reasons I'll be covering today have to do with the democratization of classical music, the standardization of pedagogy, and the pursuit of perfection in music playing. That sounds all really fancy, so let me break that down a little bit. I actually read two entire reports on this on Google Scholar. Uh, It's not something I do very often, so I'm very happy to share some of the things that I learned, but I would really recommend reading those original sources. Um, I've listed them in the show notes if you're interested in reading more about this topic. Let's go back in history once more to the time of Mozart in the late 1700s. During this time, musicians were members of the court and just another servant to the royals. Before that, musicians had a similar role, but to the church. Ivor Keyes, the biographer to Mozart, said that in the 1790s, public concerts were virtually unknown in Austria and were reserved for the delicate ears of the royals and the nobles in court. As time went by, musical performances went from the royal court to the middle-class parlor to the public auditorium, according to Robin Moore in his article, The Decline of Improvisation in Western Art Music and Interpretation of Change. Just like literature and reading that was reserved for high-class society, the advent of cheaper materials led working-class people to be able to afford instruments, sheet music, and teachers so that they could learn the music themselves. This is the democratization of classical music, and it was a great thing. And it gave us some of our most revered composers and violinists today who came from working class backgrounds. With many new budding violinists came the need for formal areas of study, which appeared in the form of conservatories in the 1800s. Just to be clear, music schools had been around for a long time before that in Europe, but they weren't accessible to everyone. And by everyone, I mean white men, of course, with everything back then. There was little to no access for women or people of color in these institutions. Conservatories were great in providing musical education to more and more people, but like other institutions, this came with the standardization of education as well. To fairly and easily gauge the level of potential students, audition requirements were put into place, which put an emphasis on certain repertoire over others, and cadences were not part of that emphasis. Let's take a look at the undergraduate entrance requirements of my alma mater, the Schulich School of Music at McGill University in Montreal. For a violinist wanting to audition for their bachelor's in violin performance, they should prepare two contrasting movements of unaccompanied Bach, the first and second movements from a classical romantic or 20th century concerto. From my own auditions, I remember that other school had very similar requirements, and they only get more specific as you get into the graduate levels of study. To be clear, the jury would expect to hear a prepared cadenza within the concerto requirement of an audition, but they wouldn't expect the cadenza to be improvised. The truth is, 
Just as many schools are placing more and more emphasis and importance in test-taking abilities of students by having them sit exams like the SAT, the LSAT, to measure their abilities, so too are music schools placing a lot of importance on traditional audition repertoire. What that may be doing to the critical thinking skills and creative development of students is a conversation for another day, but these things are harder to measure and to test for. From what I've observed, I think a lot of students are encouraged to play things safe when it comes to their creative interpretations of the repertoire. Um, For instance, a teacher preparing a high school student for an entrance audition into a conservatory might instruct them to play their Bach a certain way, knowing that the teacher on the jury for that conservatory prefers their Bach in this way, or maybe is a little bit more conservative with their interpretation. And so the student is left to decide whether they should play the Bach the way that they would like to play it, or the way that's going to give them the best shot into advancing their musical education. Another pedagogical example specific to violin we can look at is the growth of the Suzuki method in the mid-1900s. Now, I am a Suzuki teacher, and I'm currently in Suzuki training myself, so I'm not at all here to bash the Suzuki method. To give you some background, the method trains young children to learn violin by ear, and in the process, they become experts at repeating what they hear. This leads to an excellent ear from the very young age, and the model makes for some very talented children, but it doesn't really put any emphasis on improvisation, so kids don't learn it. Those kids then grow up to be violin teachers who don't know how to improvise and they don't teach it as well. So it's kind of a cycle that's developed. Another contributing factor is the decline of improvisation in the development of recording technology, which grew in popularity from the invention of the phonograph in the late 1800s. Before this, hearing classical concerts was a rare occurrence and whatever was played in the concert hall was only experienced by those who were there. It's hard to imagine this in a world of endless entertainment, jingles, Spotify, and streaming, but that was the case until the late 19th century. For the first time, we could listen to recordings of the great violinists play a piece, and then, as now, those recordings were studied by aspiring violinists who emulated what they heard. Recordings gave less and less room for error, and any mistake would be immortalized. This led us to put more and more emphasis on technical mastery and perfection in our playing. All of this brings me to what I think is the biggest downfall of improvisation, which is the pursuit of perfection in classical music. I very much feel that the way that our institutions teach, classical musicians are trained to learn and pass down a tradition rather than create and innovate. And that makes sense because the jobs available to classical musicians, such as orchestra jobs, require the musicians to execute their parts perfectly. There's a quote in the same article I mentioned earlier by the historian Jack Talbot that summarizes this perfectly. He says, I wonder whether the decline of improvisation in classical music shares something in common with the rise of the museum as a middle-class pastime. Both demand reverential attitudes towards artifacts of the past. Just as a mustache must not be drawn on the Mona Lisa, so Mozart is not to be embellished. Our beloved composers like Mozart and Bach are so perfect to us, and so who are we to change or add what they've written? 
This is a mindset we encounter all over the classical world. But luckily, in my opinion, things are changing, and I found that improvising is making a sort of a comeback these days. The classical world is still evolving and innovating, and from my experience, my generation of young professional violinists have an interest in improvisation, despite it not being emphasized or taught in schools. Plus, the musicians who specialize in early music never actually stopped improvising. If you want to hear improvising aliving well in violin music, you should attend a period performance when you can or look up Baroque orchestras online. These concerts are exciting and energetic and are very much worth checking out if you ever have the opportunity. We see improvising violinists in other genres like jazz and fiddle, and there are many people combining these styles nowadays and just doing their own thing. I found as classical musicians, we have a mindset that we can't learn to improvise, but once we get over that mental hurdle, we'll see that like anything, improvisation is a skill that can be learned. There are many great resources online nowadays with some very skilled violinists even making YouTube videos about how to improvise if you come from a classical background, and I would highly suggest doing your own research if you're interested in learning. I'll leave you with some recordings to check out of possibly the most well-known violin improviser and certainly one of my favorites, Stefan Grappelli. Grappelli was one of the most influential violinists in the gypsy jazz style, so it's not classical, although he was classically trained, and he played with Django Reinhardt and recorded many albums together. Those will be listed for you in the show notes. So that's it for this episode. I hope you found this topic as interesting as I did. I certainly learned a lot of things uh, while researching. And again, I would really recommend you check out the article, which I got most of my research from. It's called The Decline of Improvisation in Western Art Music and Interpretation of Change by Robin Moore. And again, it's linked in the show notes. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, you can reach me at violinclasspod at gmail.com. And if not, I will catch you in the next episode. This will be another student interview with one of my students, Andres, who will be sharing his journey as someone who started the violin as an adult. In the meantime, take care and thank you for listening.